Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. Today's podcast message features Dr. Kurt Mackey, our guest speaker from Sky Valley Ministries 2022 Refresh Bible Conference. To learn more about Kurt and his ministries, please visit our website at svmin.com slash refresh2022. Thank you, worship team. Again, great to be with you. Good evening to all of you. Glad to come back. It's always nice as a speaker to actually have people to come back. Like, okay, so we're still going. We're moving forward. Praise the Lord. Got a quick story. Since you mentioned that word yet, that really struck me. Um, Just a quick story. So my wife, we've been married 28 years, but for over 30 years, she was praying for her stepfather, who was really her father for most of her life. He was a cowboy. He was a sportsman, he was horses and rifles and hunting and all that lovely stuff, and I, the son-in-law, am Nike in khakis. Like, it is just, you know, I love him, but I, I just wasn't in his world. And my wife prayed for him for 30 years to come to know Jesus. And she began to pray, Lord, bring somebody that he will relate to, to share the gospel. Because again, a son-in-law who's a pastor, yeah, it's going to have to be a creative, it's got to be a cowboy. Right? And you know what God did? Brought a cowboy on a long ride on horses to share the gospel in cowboy language. And he received that, gave his life to Christ, joined a cowboy church, with a pastor with a belt buckle who's earned it from roping and all of that lovely stuff. And he really grew in his faith in the last two years. He was baptized in Bass Lake in his 70s. And he just passed away a few months ago from a long, well, nine-month battle with stage four lung cancer. And we know he's with Jesus. And so when you said the word yet, we have been hoping and praying and waiting And yet God has been faithful and creative to bring somebody into his life that he would relate to, to bring the gospel in words and language and concepts that he would understand. So for those of you, I just want to encourage you, if we're praying for our family members, for our kids and our grandkids and and all of that, that God is creative. May the Lord continue to move amongst our loved ones, yet that they might come. Amen. So with that, just tonight, we're going we're gonna to step into now the, the theological part of, of our week. To this morning, we, took, we did some sociology. We were looking at the church and where it's been in the last hundred years and where is it now and where does it need to go if we're going to be effective in a changing world. And tonight, I want to lean into this question about discipleship and disciple-making movements even and what that's all about. And we're going to do some theology, just some basic, and I know whether you're Arminians or or Reformed or this or that, I think we're going to find the middle zone. We can all say, that sounds like the gospel, and that's the point, amen? And we're going to wrestle with that a little bit tonight, then tomorrow morning we'll come back and we'll start thinking about if this is our high calling, then how do we appropriate that? And we'll talk about spiritual disciplines and and habits of the faith that allow us to deepen in our love for Jesus and our ability to love other people. 
And then tomorrow night, we're going to talk about evangelism and connecting with people of different worldviews. It's so important today in a world that has all kinds of people from all over the world literally in our backyard. And perhaps ways we've learned to share the faith in years past may not work in today's context, and so we'll talk about that tomorrow night. So that's where we're going. I'm looking forward to it. Great to be with you this evening. So I'm building this evening on the work of Bill Hall and others in the Novo organization as we think about discipleship and disciple-making movements. So C.S. Lewis the great uh, elder statesman from England, a reluctant convert to Christianity, of course, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia and so many other amazing books about the depth of our faith. He said this. He said, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men and women into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, all the clergy, All the missions, all the sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became a man for no other purpose. There's a lot in there. But again, the idea that we are to make little Christs, people who emulate and resonate and literally as we live our lives, people see Jesus in us that we might share the truth and the hope and the resurrection. For if Jesus hasn't been raised, we are lost in in an abyss, really. And yet because he's raised from the dead, everything's different. And we have a hope unlike anyone in this world. And it's our privilege to share that with others. Our basic problem, says Dallas Willard, and he, I'm proud to say, honored to say, He was one of my professors in my doctoral program. If if you're familiar with Dallas Willard, he's one of the greatest living and just recently passed away writers in spirituality. He's a philosopher at uh, USC, and he has a, a whole body of work in philosophy, but he's also been one of the most significant thinkers in this area of what it means to follow Jesus and be a disciple. And as I got to spend two weeks with him locked in a monastery, and have him teach me the kingdom of God for seven hours a day was one of the high points of my theological education, and he wrecked me (laughs) because he showed me the gospel in ways I'd never seen, and I'm profoundly different. And I stand before you today because of that course. And Dallas Willard said this. He said, as egg-headed as it may sound, I love that, our basic problem is our theology. The problem, he argues, is our doctrine of salvation. If that's not provocative, that pretty much gets me going, whoa, what's he gonna, what are we talking about here? So let's unpack that a little bit. The primary gospel preached in our age has really been, and I've, I'm a recipient of this from the moment I was in churches, it was all about forgiveness only. That the whole gospel is summed up in many preachers and teachers and presentations of the gospel. It's all about forgiveness. Once you have forgiveness, boom, you're done, you're in, it's over, hang out until heaven. And in essence, that's kind of what I understood and have understood and have probably preached, sadly, along the way. We focus almost completely in our preaching and teaching, teaching rather, on sin and the atonement and how we're made right with God and we're forgiven, and that is all true. So please don't hear what I'm not saying. We're not saying anything other than something different. We're just saying there's more to it than just those two topics. 
Because in this model, in these, if you only circle around these two topics, what happens is your gospel message is transactional. It's basically believe this and you get the ticket to heaven. Essence, if you raise your hand and get wet, you're going to heaven. Like that's sort of how it's been portrayed. And I know that I've seen you know, evangelists and I've even done this, I'm just begging people to accept Jesus. And if I can get a hand raised, boom, we got one and we put it in the books and then we sort of leave them there. You're in, you're forgiven, now have a great life. But that wasn't Jesus' approach to his kingdom. And what we're discovering is this, in the last 50 years or so, as, as thinkers and Dallas Willard and others have begun to really wrestle with the gospel that we're living into, the gospel that we're presenting to our world that we live in today, is, is often this, that people don't actually believe Jesus Christ. They will profess faith in him, but we often don't really believe Jesus. Like when he says things like, it is better to give than receive, we go, well, okay, that's, that's cool at Christmas and stuff, but, but we don't really take that, like that's a life principle forever. And he says, life in the kingdom, we are to love our enemies. And we're like, yeah, that's a great aspiration, but you're not really serious about that because, you know, Lord, we got to... We got battles to fight, and we got people to hate, and you know, I mean, come on, my neighbor, and are you kidding me? Like, and you know, how many Sunday school classes have we been? We spent 12 weeks trying to figure out how to love our neighbors. I've never been there. But if he said, this is life, disciples said, you have the words of life, Jesus, then do we really believe Jesus? We may believe in him, but do we believe him? When he says these amazing countercultural, challenging, stretching things. See, he doesn't call us to make a decision about the gospel. He's calling us to be disciples, which means learners, because of the gospel. Once we understand what he's done, we want to follow him in his way of life. And I want to make the case that the gospel is about following and learning and growing into him. Discipleship is this idea of following Jesus. It's actually an essential part of the very good news that he preached. And I want to make that case tonight. See, the reality is that eternal life begins now. I was really taught in so many different gospel presentations that, that, that eternal life is something I'm looking forward to someday and essentially, I've been forgiven, I'm to come to church, be good, and gut it out until he comes again. And that's, in essence, how I approached. In fact, when I mean gut it out, it often meant stay away from everybody else, try to stay holy until he comes. Hunker down, huddle and cuddle, and wait for him to come again. And since I grew up in, I cut my teeth theologically in the discipleship in the 70s and the early 80s, it was all about the end times. It was all about fear. And it was all about just stay away from all these people. The Lord's coming before the decade's over. And I heard it over and over and over again. It created a whole fearful soul in me. 
And I kept looking at the newspaper all the time. And, oh my goodness, is this it? Is this the week? Is he coming? I even asked myself at one point in the middle of college under a really difficult exam. I'm studying for statistics too. Why I took that, I have no idea. And, and I'm in this really awful course. And it dawns on me, if we're not going to make it out of this decade, what am I doing here? Right? I mean, you start, I mean, really, if these books that are being published and if all this is true, why am I spending money on college and why am I worrying about this? Hmm. Perhaps there's more than just stay away from people and wait till he comes. We would argue the kingdom of God is the eternal life begins now. The moment you repent and believe the good news about Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit and start following him, you literally enter now into a new realm where he wants all of you to come under his reign and rule. And so repentance and belief and spirit-filled obedience, they all go together. It's a new life that we're called to live. Now, why this gets confusing for a lot of us is that there are literally different gospels that are preached out there. And Bill Hall does a great job of explaining and pulling out these different um, approaches to the gospel, if you will. The first one we call forgiveness only. It's the idea of just be forgiven. That's the essence of everything. And what it does, it creates a following of Jesus as basically optional. As long as you've raised your hand and believe, you don't actually have to get like serious about following Jesus. That might be for those nerdy Christian people that come on Sunday night before the evening service for the discipleship class, but those are the special people. You know, the rest of us, as long as we believe and have raised our hand, it's good to go. That's the forgiveness-only gospel, and it makes following Christ actually kind of an optional, or for certain people, but not all of us. Another gospel that's out there that he pulls from, he calls it the gospel of the left. And this is essentially, the good news is really us living to help the needy, and we're all about, you know, blessing people, and again, I'm not opposed to that at all, but as if that's all it is, we accommodate to the culture, and real truth is optional as long as we are loving people in practical ways. Okay, another gospel that's out there today is the prosperity gospel. This is the claim your rights approach to the faith. Essentially, it's an entitlement that I'm supposed to get all the goodies of heaven now, and essentially, you're managing God. I demand and you will perform for me. You are a vending machine for my riches, my wealth, and my comfort. Another gospel is a consumer gospel. This is the God that meets our needs. Well, what's the, what's the concept out there with therapeutic deism? Are you familiar with that term? There's another whole idea that God just is out there to make you feel good, to make you self-actualize, to meet your needs, to help you become a successful American citizen, that you're going to, you know, that, that the middle class is going to move to the upper middle class, you're going to keep rising if you appropriate biblical principles, and essentially, it's just all about indulgence and impatience and addiction to desire. Another gospel out there is the gospel of the right which is really, in essence, about be right. And it's really about making sure that our doctrine 
is absolutely pure and perfect and thought through and consistent all the way through. And what actually happens there, if we go down that path too far, is we just become really arrogant people and we can be detached from the brokenness of the world. I have a predilection to lean that way. It's easy for me to want to study because I'm a nerd. I, I love to read and theology and all of that. And I could sit around with a bunch of theologians and we could nitpick each other's theology and nuance all that stuff. And it would be very easy to just say, you know, the rest of it's all going to hell, but we're going to get our doctrine right because the Lord cares about exactly every jot and tittle of my thinking in the gospel and the theology. But I'm afraid it makes arrogant people who don't often act like Jesus. Then there's this thing called the gospel of the kingdom, which says, follow me. It creates an activist, if you will. I don't mean that in the, sort of the negative sense, but it, it makes people who literally are like, okay, Lord, how do I live into and appropriate and be a blessing to the world around us? It makes followers intent on learning to live and lead like Jesus. Right, because he is the Lord, he is the king. He is the smartest man who ever lived. And when he teaches, it's the truth. And instead of just believing in him that he is the son of God and rose again, we actually believe what he says about life, about the ways of the kingdom, and we learn to appropriate those as we live day to day. I think it's time that we need a discipleship revolution because this world, I believe, as I said this morning, or as I said yesterday, rather, we need people who live in word, deed, and power, who literally have the patience and the forbearance of Jesus and, and the truth of Jesus and who live by kingdom values and who literally are countercultural to the ways of this world because our world needs to see Jesus literally in us. And the gospel that we preach will determine the kind of disciples that we actually make. So Jesus' gospel, just to get really clear, in Mark 1, 14 to 17, he talks about the kingdom being here in Jesus. He talks about repentance and believing the good news and following him. In Mark 8, 27 to 31, we see again Jesus is the Christ, that he would die, and that he would rise from the dead after three days. These are these basic truths, basic facets of what the good news is all about. And so the good news, euangelion is the Greek word, is a scripture-based declaration about Jesus, who Jesus is, what he has done, how he fulfills all the scriptures, and how he calls us to respond to him. You'll notice that Paul takes those same themes. So in Mark 8, we see Christ, we see that he died, we see that he rose again. In 1 Corinthians, Paul will say he was the Christ, he died for our sins, he was raised according to the scriptures. These are the basic tenets of the gospel. We see that Jesus then is the fulfillment of Israel's entire Old Testament story. The whole Bible circles around and affirms that Jesus is the Christ, the Holy One, our Savior. Amen? So with that, there are five elements I want to unpack for you tonight. The first is this idea of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. If you notice carefully, and I didn't understand this until Dallas Willard pointed this out to me, that Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of God, 
but it's rarely defined. I'd never heard about it in all the preaching and all the Bible studies I'd been to. I'd never heard, really, of the kingdom of God other than it was this other thing someday. Don't worry about it. It comes when it comes when he comes again. And in essence, I was taught that you know, when you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and all these ways of, of what a f- Christ follower, they're, they're, they're so radically different I believe nobody can be like that until he comes again. Like that stuff is just, it's too crazy. It's too much. But then I began to read the scriptures again carefully, and I began to read Paul, and I read the others who were always talking about putting on and getting rid of and becoming new, and and, and all of a sudden these fruits of the Spirit take root in our lives, and suddenly I began to realize that Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is describing what life in the kingdom looks like, and it can actually begin now. That followers can actually begin to look like this. Not that we're doing that stuff to get saved, This is what saved people do. You see the difference? Because I was in churches that were so afraid of adding anything to the gospel, so the idea was actually working on my faith was somehow trying to earn my way to heaven, and I've come to realize, no, 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 no. I'm saved. I can't do anything about that. But now that I'm saved, this is what the Father and Jesus and the Spirit wants me to do, to become more like him to be a blessing to those around me. And as we're going to see in a few moments, he's preparing us to train for when we reign with him. Now that's quite a motivation. See, the kingdom of God is the restoration of God's rule over all things. And since the fall, God has been putting all things in place so that this fallen earthly realm might be restored under his absolute sovereign rule. And the restoration of God's rule over all things and the coming of God's kingdom in the world, they converge in the life of Jesus. So when we believe in the gospel of Jesus, we literally are stepping into something that is far bigger than ourselves. We're stepping into his realm. We're stepping into a new set of values, new ethics, new behaviors, and new power source. And we live there as the beginning of what's coming. It's all connected together. And so wherever Christ is ruling, the kingdom of God there is. And so, as George Eldon Ladd taught us so well, the kingdom of God has come, it is coming, and is yet to come. There is this already but not yet dimension It is here and it's coming. We taste it as a foretaste, but we see the final consummation that's coming, but it also means we live in it now and then we'll live in it fully when he comes again. And there's a tension there about the now and the not yet. We still live in a broken world. We still live in fallen humanity. We still live in a world of spiritual warfare. There's still battles to fight, and yet it's worth it because of where we're going and what it's going to be all about. And so as Jesus presences his kingdom in the world, he does it with followers who do the same. And I think that's a great motivation to step into a discipleship. If he's training us to reign with him, if our character that he's forming matters in the next world because it's all connected, 
And it's time to live very seriously. Say, Lord, what is it you're doing in me? What do you want to flush out and change and grow and, and get rid of in me so that I'm actually more like you? Not to earn my way into the kingdom, but because I'm in the kingdom, you've called me into this new life. May it be so. So that's the kingdom. The next issue is Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He's God's anointed king. And if he's king, then we're to surrender all of our lives to him, to seek to obey all of his commandments. So there's, over the years, there have been different expressions of this. There's my heart, Christ's home, the idea that he, he's going to live in the living room and in the den and in the bedroom and in the foyer and in the, on the porch. And he, he wants all of us, not just our mental ascent. He wants our whole being subsumed under him. And the challenge is, are we reflective enough to say, Lord, where are you working? What is it that I'm still holding on to? What are the idols in my life? What are the things I'm still resisting your kingdom values? Lord, help me to confess those, to live into community where I can begin to let go of this stuff so you'll transform me so I look more like Jesus. See, to, to, to declare Jesus to be the Christ is to swear allegiance as his anointed king. If he's king, then I want him to rule in my life now. And I want him to have all of me. My thoughts, my body, my emotions, all of it has to come under his kingship. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, it's really allegiance to a king. And therefore, we devote ourselves to obey. He's the one who has the words of life. He's the smartest one in the world. He actually is God in the flesh. He knows the way we're supposed to live. He actually models it, and he bids his followers to come learn the ways of the kingdom, to appropriate these things and live in word, deed, and power. And we become little Christs into the world. It's funny when Jesus says, you know, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And then it's fascinating. And so many Christians around the world today live as if, I, I, as long as I said the right thing and prayed the right prayer, I don't really have to like learn and grow into all that stuff. I, I'm good. And Jesus is saying, you got to come follow me. Took those 12 disciples and showed them the ways of the kingdom and then unleashed them in the world. In James 2.14, it says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? Now again, we're not saying that we do works to be saved, but the challenge is, if you actually are a follower of Jesus, it will show up in a changed life. And if it's not, are we really sure we understand who Jesus is and what he's asking, what the kingdom, have we really counted the cost, Jesus would even say. See, obedience really is critical if we're gonna follow him forever. Obedience is essential to the gospel. Dallas Willard used to say the, the gospel um, is free, but it doesn't mean, doesn't, but he said it doesn't mean that it doesn't require effort. He's not saying you're doing the effort to be saved, but once you're saved, it requires learning and leaning in and following. And following sometimes is bumpy, and we have to learn to let go of some things, and Jesus will confront our idols like we've talked about. He, he will deal with the issues of our heart if we'll open ourselves to him. And often, friends, much of that is done in community. 
which in North America is frightening because we like bootstraps, we like to do it ourselves. And yet the faith has always been a communal experience. In Romans 1, 1 to 6, there's the obedience of faith. For Jesus, discipleship was first and foremost about being with his disciples. So being with him so he could influence them to be more like him. He was always pouring into this community. There's really three loves of Jesus if you look at it this way. He was always spending time with the Father privately. He's always up on mountains. He's always praying all night. He would literally have time away to be with the Father. And then he would spend continue a, a, a rich amount of time with these disciples, his spiritual community, his church, if you will, his church brothers and sisters, if you will. But then he also spent time taking care of and blessing and touching the needs of the world and of the broken. And so followers of Jesus, if we're going to emulate our lives like him, then we're to spend time with the Father and the Spirit and with Jesus in our private devotions. We're to have rich community experiences where we're learning to, to, to walk in his ways and we're literally doing life on life and, we're, and it's rubbing off on each other, right? Iron sharpening iron. And then we're to go into the world and minister to the broken world and bring the kingdom to the world. It's all three. And often we're really good at one, we're okay at a second, the third one not so good. And the challenge is to how do we lean into all three of those to be fully orbed and fully devoted followers of Jesus. See, we are to be a blessing to the world. We are literally bringing the kingdom wherever we go. Part of that discipleship course I talked about this morning in the second year of the material, we literally begin to think through what it means that you in your workplace or in your school or wherever are literally a kingdom agent sent there to be a blessing to your workspace, to your, to your fellow students, wherever you live, work, and play. And we literally take field trips to each other's workplace and pray over it and begin to imagine what it's like to live there in the context of that place. And how do you be Jesus in the middle of the values of that workspace or wherever you are? How do we literally be kingdom agents? What a way to live. And if we open ourselves to live like this, Jesus will use us in profound ways if we're open. And as we like to say again, as I said this morning, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. It's spelled risk. Because you grow in those places where it's uncomfortable and our soul expands. Because we're training to reign with him. We're not just going to heaven Although it's going to be a great worship service, gentlemen. It's going to be great, great music. It's going to be amazing. I'm getting a double half stack. It's going to be amazing, perfectly tuned. I'm going to get the best amps and guitars. It's going to be fabulous. But there's so much more than just having a worship service in heaven. There's actually reigning over the creation, talking about reigning over and judging angels. I mean, what is all that stuff about? That's quite a future. And again, the character formed here, I think, connects into that world. So how we live for Jesus now matters of where we're going. We're training for reigning. So discipleship is intentionally learning to live and love others like Jesus with other Christ followers. It not only gives us the opportunity to learn that Jesus is the Christ, but it also gives us the opportunity to experience his presence and his power as the Christ. So, let's talk about his death and resurrection for a few moments. See, personal faith in Christ's death and resurrection leads us to die to sin daily. 
and to live in the power of his resurrection. For so many years of my Christian faith, again, I was just, I went to Sunday school, I was, you know, just doing my life, and it never occurred to me that I needed to, like, repent, like, daily, because there was actually stuff that he was working on in me, and I began to realize, oh, that's your spirit whispering. Like, I've got stuff I've got to work out and confess and let go of. You're at work in me. And because you died and rose again, there's power to overcome all this stuff, and I can live in the power of your resurrection. I can become different. My temper doesn't have to stay like this. My anger issues don't have to always be like this, right? My dirty thoughts and disgusting thoughts and whatever doesn't always have to be like this. My temptations, my addictions, whatever, doesn't have to be like this because of the power of his resurrection. And discipleship is learning to live and giving up those things for the sake of the kingdom and having him replace his values into us so that we're literally becoming different people. Or as Paul would say, becoming new creations. Therefore we take up our cross, denying the selfish and sinful desires of our flesh daily, putting desires to death daily. That's a daily walk with him. Lord, I want my mind to be pure, my emotions to be pure, my responses today to be, to be godly and long-suffering and patient. Lord, continue to work in me. And we work in community, and we work at these things because he's refashioning us and making us new creations. See, Christ's death broke open the floodgates of God's kingdom-advancing work in the world. The indwelling spirit is unleashed to empower believers unto obedience. Christ began to build his church. Christ's death defeated Satan. He conquered death. He smashed sin. And we can live then in the power of his resurrection. That's the kind of life I want to live daily. Who's up for that? That's a journey. Not always easy. Sometimes it's like going to the gymnasium. You like going to the gym? Eh. Right? But it's in the pressing and the pressure and the pushing against things is where the muscles get strengthened, right? It's in sometimes it's in the challenging moments is where the growth begins. And so God puts us in places. He tests us. He puts us in where things begin to happen. We have to trust him and, and confess things. And life in the kingdom is not always easy, but it's a good work. And the Lord promises he will be faithful to complete that good work. Hallelujah. But we're all works in progress. And so when people say the church is full of hypocrites, I'm like, yeah, because we're all messed up. But hopefully we're actually slowly improving and becoming more like Jesus. So we accept everybody the way they are, but we don't want to leave them, let them stay there. Because God's trying to do something. Make us like little Christs. To live in his resurrection power is to follow Jesus by the Holy Spirit, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to die to sin and to live in obedience to Christ. That means we're really be saying, Lord, what are you doing in me? What do you want me to get rid of? What's not pleasing you? And to repent daily because we are already forgiven. It's a daily experience of the gospel. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey, to be a blessing, to spread the kingdom, to teach, to heal, to cast out demons, to do all that stuff. That's what he trained his disciples to do. I think we're to follow in suit. So then we repent and we believe. It's, it's a radical change of mind and heart. Repentance, of course, at conversion is critical 
but it's also important throughout our lives. It's an ongoing thing. When Jesus called Nicodemus in Matthew 23 to believe, he understood due to his Jewish background that believing in him went hand in hand with repentance from sin and following. He got it. I've got to be different. I'm following the king. And so if we have gift card belief, it's this idea that if I believe in the gospel, then I get stuff from God. That's one approach. We get to go to heaven. We don't really need to life change. I don't think that's really biblical uh, repentance or belief. Biblical belief is actionable. It's not just mental assent about knowing the history of what he did and to say, yep, that sounds about right. It's about trusting Jesus in a way that causes us to do the things we would never do if you were not following him. That's pretty cool stuff. As I shared the other morning, like praying for people in burger restaurants when it's risky. But my faith grew in the middle of that. And I look back on that. It was a, it was a challenging moment, but I'm glad he put me through that because I've grown and allows me to, to risk a little more in the next one. As my colleague likes to say, as we're going through both challenging times and good times and as God's working in us, my friend always says to me, Kirk, he's trying to make you a Christian. <laughs> I just love that. Like, oh, that's right. He's trying to make me like him. He's trying to make a generous heart. I was talking to pastor the other day about, you know, the Baptist tradition where I come from. Now, I'm, I come from that tradition, but sadly, so many Baptist churches, and it comes to their compensation of their staff. I mean, there are some church boards that are just like, we love to lavish money on pastors, and other church boards, it's all about how can we jip out them for, and create the, the, the minimum paycheck to get by and keep them poor and humble. And I'm like, wow. Boy, that sounds like the heart of the Father, doesn't it? You know, a generous God, and yet we approach these things with such, such baptism and lemon juice. Like, what is that about? And that's been my tradition. And I realize that God's trying to make me a generous person because God is generous. You know, this whole tithing thing isn't about resourcing. Well, it, it helps resource the kingdom, but it's really about making us generous people, about making us people who actually trust him to really root out idolatry in our lives, to actually put him first I used to tell my church all the time, you can't afford not to tithe. No wonder your finances are all messed up because you're robbing God. You've got to put him first and then watch what happens. I got so whacked out on that, I actually said, look, we'll just give your money back after six months if it all gets, all gets messed up. People were shocked. My elders were like, oh, he didn't say that. But I was believing the scriptures. That's what Jesus said. So don't worry about these things. Trust me where your heart is. That's where your gifts are. So put your faith in him by putting him first, even in your finances. And you know what happened? People started tithing. You know how much money we gave back? Zero. Why? Because God showed up in all their lives. And all of a sudden, they would get like an extra check in the mail or they got a promotion. Or I'm not saying they got a Maserati. I'm just saying God showed up and met the need. And it was interesting how nobody needed that extra money. In fact, they kept get, the more they gave, God kept showing up because they were starting to believe Jesus, not just believe in him. See the difference? Because God's trying to make us generous people, big-hearted people, people who forgive others. Right? You see how this works. He's trying to make us like his son. 
So following leans into these things. It's a cost of discipleship. It costs Jesus his life. It's not an easy journey. Purging sin is hard work. But again, Jesus is the only one that has the words of life. Where else are we going to go? He's the way, the truth, and the life. But Jesus did say, look, before you become my disciple, you better count the cost. We've been begging people to come into the kingdom assuming you don't, they don't have to do anything. And then they're shocked and we're like, well, we actually need to like read your Bible and repent and change your life. And they're like, but that's not what you said. You just said I have to say yes and the transaction was done and I'm in. Read our scriptures carefully. There's a, it's all about God making us new. So we follow. We are, we are actually to do good works. Ephesians 2.10, one of my favorite verses about how God's prepared these works beforehand. He wants us to, to lean into him and become a blessing to the world. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 says, we're not saved by works. When I was a new Christian, I had just memorized Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By faith, we are saved. Sorry, we're saved by grace through faith and not of works, right? So no one can boast. And so I memorized 8 and 9 that basically was like, you're saved, you can't do anything about it. It's by God's grace. And I was like, amen, circled in my Bible. But I never read verse 10, which was, you're saved so that you can be a blessing. Again, not to earn your salvation, but because you're saved, we get to lean in and become these people who do these things. Oh, I get it. Huh. Our good works, then, are the fruit of us abiding in Jesus. More of him in us, more of him pouring out. And John 14, 12 was really challenging. Like, do we actually believe Jesus when he says you'll do greater works than mine? And we all go, well, he didn't really mean that. That can't really be like that. We find all kinds, again, we don't believe him. We often believe in him, but we don't actually believe him. That can't be true, or could it? What could he actually do in and through you? It's been said this way, the kingdom of God has come through Jesus of Nazareth. He is Christ, the King, God's one and only Son. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He was resurrected on the third day according to the scriptures. And in his great love and by his amazing grace, God our Father saves everyone who repents of their sin, believes the gospel, and follows Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. When King Jesus returns on the last day, the great day of judgment, everyone who followed him will enter the kingdom of God. When the discipleship call is nothing less than following Jesus. He called us to follow him. When the primary characteristic of a disciple is change, demonstrated by a growth in character that requires increasing knowledge, appropriate attitudes, right thoughts, improving relationships, and obedient action to be like Christ in all things. So the church I was pastoring, one of the famous members there, he was longtime member, one of the teachers of the Sunday school for years and decades. He was an angry man. In fact, he was so tense. We actually, people called him behind his back the vibrator because he was so tense his leg would vibrate like this. He'd talk with you as if he was going to rip your head off. And yet he knew the Bible inside and out. And when I read his notes one time, because he was talking about, I'm going to teach this next Sunday school class, it was all kinds of data and interesting trivia and, and details 
But here's this man who knows the scriptures and the concepts and the details, but in so many ways it had not trickled down from here into here, and he was like an angry, uptight guy who would literally take you out on the plaza during coffee time. And as I'm trying to bring new people into the kingdom, I don't want any of my new disciples to meet this guy, right? Because that doesn't look like Jesus. He knows a lot. But there's so much that has not been worked out. And I actually, in my heart, and I failed that man as a pastor because he did confess some things about his life. I began to understand the deep pain of his life, the, the abandonment from his father, the, the never being affirmed. There were so many things. And I didn't understand as a young man pastor how to pastor this older man. I was just sort of nervous and scared of the guy half the time. And then he died. And to this day, I still feel like, oh, I really missed being able to help pastor him and help bring the gospel from his head into some deeper places in his soul where he would literally find peace. He didn't have peace. I think about him as he, he got so much right and yet there was so much still missing. And, and friends, none of us wants to be people that other people look at and are like, that doesn't look like Jesus. I don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be that gal. We, we want to be people where God is at work in us. Yes? My good friend who's actually going to join us tomorrow, assuming his car works, is um, he actually came up with a, what I, right now I just call it the Greenwood Gospel Motivation Ladder. And the idea is this. He says, you know, we all know the Bible says make disciples, and yet nobody seems to be doing it. And we know the greatest commandment is to love others, the second commandment, and the first commandment is to love God. And the, he, what he challenges us, he says, look, Work your way down to the very bottom. Start with be loved. Start with understanding that God loves you and forgives you and is working in you. And if you'll let your identity be rooted in him and not in our possessions, in the power, in, in our places in this world, in our, in our jobs, that we are literally understand he is our heavenly father and he loves me. If we start there, and let him work by his spirit to cleanse us and reform us, then we work our way back up. As we spend more time in the gospel daily, it makes us love God more, which allows us to love people more, which then makes disciples flow easily. But it starts with going deep with the Father and the Spirit and the Son. This next slide just shows... Jesus' discipleship funnel. It's interesting. He worked with crowds. He worked with a group of about 72. Of course, he had his 12. He had three within the 12. You ever thought about that? He had 12, and then he had three, and then he had one. It's interesting to me. Jesus wasn't fair, right? Like, he paid attention in different ways to different people. And I can imagine the other guys, like, how come he's always with Matthew? You know, well, how come he's always with Peter, James, and John? What about us? I don't know how that works. But for those that really wanted to go, they wanted to blow and go, he poured deep into them. And it's interesting that the, it's been argued that the, the most highly transformative zone there is actually groups of three, where real discussion and discipleship takes place in very small groups of honest, open conversation about the Spirit, what the Spirit is doing in us, and the accountability that goes with that. See, Jesus actually preached to the crowds, but of course he pulled a few people out and taught them how to live it. And as Robert Coleman in his great book said, 
His concern, Jesus' concern, was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men and women whom the multitudes would follow. See, Jesus was reforming those guys. And what's funny is if you read the book of Mark carefully, I mean, they got it, and they didn't get it. They got it, they didn't get it. I mean, it's, it's an up and down journey. And then when he finally dies and the Spirit comes, they're like, oh, it all came together. And off they went. But he poured deep into them, not in programs, but in real life-on-life discipleship to make people that the world would follow. Discipleship was how he evangelized the people in whom he invested and the people they reached as a result. So I want to say this about gospel impact. We overestimate what can be done in the short term. You know, in just a matter of weeks, you go through a discipleship class of 12 weeks, that's just the beginning of the story. In my early discipleship, I went through these 12-week classes filled in the blanks, and boom, close the book, I've been discipled. No, you haven't. You've been exposed to some ideas. Discipleship is a much longer journey of letting Jesus reign over all of my life. However, what can be done in the long term is very powerful. And the kingdom walk, as Eugene Peterson called it, is a long obedience in the same direction. Jesus poured deeply into 12, and he literally changed the world. So I'm going to pivot for a moment. We have about 10 minutes left. Is that right, Pastor? We good? Right? And I want to lean into disciple-making movements. So we've talked about discipleship, and I've laid a lot at you, and I want you to process and pray through that, and we can talk about it tomorrow. I want to show you what God's doing in disciple-making movements for a few moments. Because again, Matthew 28, Jesus was said to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them, and then to teach them to obey. And yet he's with us always to the end of the age, right? Disciples are to make disciples. And this was really challenging to me. Not just pastors are to make disciples. Pastors are actually to model making disciples. Most pastors I know don't have time to make disciples because they've got big machines to run, big church engines to, to run. And it was challenged this way. Somebody said, you know, pastor, you were given a, a commandment before you became a professional Christian. Oh. Ouch, right? Like, all, everybody gets to play, pastors included. And if pastors aren't making disciples, how are they supposed to be expecting other people to make disciples? Everybody must play. That's what Jesus taught them how to do. And he wanted not just addition, he wanted multiplication. So if we see what was happening in the first century, they gave the gospel to a people and he taught them to obey it. They, they, in the first three centuries, they literally were like, okay, Jesus says to love our enemies, we're going to work on that. If he says to do this, we're going to do it. Like, we literally live by the words of Jesus. We make them ours. We obey that. And then we see people becoming faithful disciples of Jesus. We leave them to struggle, to struggle in obeying the word of God in their own context and in their own history. We let these people then take the gospel into their different lands and contexts. And therefore, we allow people to develop their own unique practices for worship, leadership, governance in the confines of biblical guidance. So often in the, old t in the old days, we made disciples by bringing everything about our culture into their culture. 
which is why churches look really funny in places where they don't even make, they don't even build buildings like that, but somehow it had to be this way with these pews, and we, and we have the same clothing. Instead, it's about making disciples of Jesus who live in their own contexts and live that out in their own culture, and it will look different. Which is why when musicians go around the world, they see worship leaders with all different instruments all over the world in all kinds of contexts, using rhythms and styles from all different kinds of peoples all over the world. That's a beautiful thing. Rather than importing our styles to everybody else, we want to release the gospel and let it travel quickly and let them appropriate in their own cultural context. And the way that happens, if we're going to really see movements take place, there have to be prayer movements to precede gospel movements. We never see gospel movements. We don't ever see revivals and the gospel traveling quickly unless there's been really intensive prayer beforehand. And so communities that are prayer walking and are involved in listening prayer and healing prayer and praying for God's kingdom to come, we need the intercessors to rise up over the Sky Valley area, over this whole Palm Springs area, over Los Angeles, over America. We need people to be praying deeply, thy kingdom come. Start walking your neighborhood. Start saying, Lord, what do you want to do here? Kick out all the enemy out of here. We need your spirit to come and a free reign here. That prayer starts before the gospel movements take root. Does it make sense? These are these missional principles we're seeing now around the world. And it requires an extensive prayer network if we're going to get serious about this. As I said earlier, we're learning that this is the end of doing church without prayer. I mean, we never had a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Prayer was like this afterthought. And oh, by the way, it was always done by pastors. Pastor, would you pray? Oh, it's a gathering, would you pray, right? No, 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 no. It's time for every God's people to go before the king. He's their, he's your king pray and call down his power. We all get to play. As we've talked about in missionality, then we engage lost people, we serve them, we meet practical needs, we live in this whole idea of missionality, we earn the right to be heard, we seek for persons of peace. I've been really challenged by this, that, that God has prepared people whose spirits are open to God, and he places them in unique places and so we see this in, in the scriptures where, you, where Jesus tells the boys to go to a particular village and if you find somebody who's receptive, who's got a network, then you stay there and you preach because that person's going to open doors for you. When we teach people to do missional things and to serve the lost in the city, we find oftentimes a person who's really open and receptive to spiritual things who's like, come, be part of what we're doing. I'll introduce you around. That's a person of peace. God's preparing them to use them in network ways for the gospel to spread. Cornelius, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, the Samaritan woman, these were all persons of peace who were prepared and ready to go and spread the gospel far and wide. All kinds of scriptures there in your notes on the persons of peace. As the time is running out, we're going to go quickly. If you're going to find persons of peace, we've got to live your faith conspicuously. You've got to pray that you'll find them. You serve people, and you qualify them. You actually find out, are they open to a relationship with you? One of the questions I ask is, do you consider yourself a spiritual person? And if they say yes, oh, I might have found one. It's not an offensive question. Remember, in this postmodern world, everything goes. 
Lots of folks think, well, yeah, I guess so. And the, I was sitting there in the gymnasium one time. My colleague said to this guy who's all kinds of, you know, tats and this and that, and yet he was talking about going to India and going to this temple. And my friend said, you a spiritual person? Oh, yeah. And then for the next half hour, he told us all about his spiritual journey. They began to have a conversation. Hey, would you want to be open to looking at, the, at the, a different set of scriptures? Yeah, I'd be open because I'm open to everything. Person of peace. We had a network of all kinds of folks like that. So my colleague began to break away with him. And he started doing Discovery Bible Study, which we'll talk about in a moment. So dis- Discovery Bible Study is simply this. We read the passage. We have somebody retell it in their own words. And then we ask three key questions. This model is being used all over the world to propagate the gospel. It is so simple, yet it's so profound. It doesn't require teachers with long degrees and pedigrees. It just requires people to pray fervently, invite people to come and investigate the Scripture, have them tell back the Scripture, that little section, in their own words, and ask these three questions. What does this passage tell us about God? What does this tell us about human beings? And if this is true, what must we do? We're discipling people, by the way, into obedience before they even become a follower. They scatter, they come back. How was your week? What did you do with what you committed to do? Because before we leave, we're all going to commit to doing something different because if this is true, then this is what I'm going to do. We come back and discuss. We look at a new passage and we do it over again. People are coming to faith by the millions in this process in parts of the world. I'm curious to see if this will begin to work here in North America with people who literally don't know what the Scriptures teach. They don't like Christians, but they actually have no idea what's really in the Bible. Our team has, has literally teams of people that train churches in how to literally do this process so that we can actually train people to do this in the Starbucks and at various, you can do this in, uh, in Cocos or wherever you want to go. You can sit, literally sit down with a few people, open up the scriptures. What does it say about human beings? What does it say about God? And if it's true, what should we do? And watch the Spirit use the Word to transform lives. So, I've got expanded versions of this in your notes. I'm going to break now because there's a lot of detail in there. We even have sections of Scripture. We've got entire models. If you want to do Discovery Bible Study, pastors put a whole series of great uh, Scriptures that are in there for you. They're all there for you to appropriate, to use. If you're interested in Discovery Bible Study as a tool in the future, we at Novo have access to that. We, they'll come and do that for you folks. You can do a whole workshop on this just to be trained to bring this to those far and wide. Sound good? I've given you a lot of stuff. Fire hose again tonight, right? Yep, well, that's how I roll. So lots of good stuff. Let it chew on it. Let the Lord use a few nuggets here and there to begin to work on you. It'll work in different ways with different people. May God bless you. Let's sing and worship, and we'll come back tomorrow morning at 10. Yes? All righty, God bless, and good night. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. 
Have a blessed day.